as I look at the prophet Zephaniah, I think he didn't do very well in high school English class. I don't know if you've ever read Zephaniah, but um, what's the first thing we learn when we're, supposed to, when we're writing an essay or a story or something like that in high school English? First thing you're supposed to do? Remember the hook? Do they still teach that? You start your story, you start your essay in the first sentence or two with something that's going to capture everyone's interest, so they're going to want to keep on reading. Um, Zephaniah is not very good at that. In fact, he starts kind of the other way with a downer that makes you want to stop reading. So uh, I know he didn't even know English. English didn't exist when he wrote, so I guess he's got that excuse. But how am I doing? Is that a good hook? Do you want to hear what I have to say about that? Well, you're going to have to wait a little bit further down before we tie that together. But uh, this morning, I want to talk about, um, I think it's maybe more personal. Maybe not. Maybe the message is, what is Zephaniah saying to me? Uh, And share a little bit of a testimony of of God's work uh, through this book in my life. But I would put it this way to begin with. In Zephaniah, God says, grace has a shape. Grace has a shape. Now, we all learned something about shapes way back in, uh, in Sesame Street. Who can still sing the song? One of these things is not like the other. I can see from, from your smiles that many of you uh, know this, this little game that uh, happens on, in the mornings. or I, I have no idea if it still happens, but, but back when I was a kid, uh, we... We watched Sesame Street from time to time and played this game. But let's play a little more adult version. Um, I have on the screen a number of different pictures. And uh, one of these things is not like the other. So we have uh, five chairs and one stool. But the interesting thing about this is the, the stool, like if you just did a say a blind touch and feel or a scientific analysis, the stool and the kitchen chair, I think, have a lot more in common with one another than the kitchen chair and the other chairs. But yet, as, uh, as English people, we all recognize immediately which ones are chairs and which one is not. That's interesting. But we, 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 we have a common understanding of what, what it is. We can recognize the shape even if the shape's between the chairs is very, very different. Now, we can, we can look at that in other areas as well. For example, uh, one of these things is not like the other. And here we have a number of trees and one shrub. And again, the trees are very, very different from each other, but yet we recognize them as trees. And the, the other one there in the bottom middle, I, I hope you recognize it as a shrub, not a tree. Uh, And it's interesting to think about why that is, how we do that. And I'm not going to get into the philosophy of all that. You can can read uh, ancient philosophers who talked about these things if you want to. But what I'm getting at is simply this. There's certain things that we just recognize the shape. When we see it, we know what we're looking at. Uh, We have a definition for that. And uh, so that's what I'm going to focus on a little bit. There's There's many different things and probably even more important things in the book of Zephaniah that we could focus our attention on. 
But this is where God focused my attention this week. Uh, and so that's what I'm going to share with you. Grace has a shape. Now to the, to the hook or the not hook. This is how Zephaniah begins. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away people and animals alike. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea. I will reduce the wicked to heaps of rubbles. And I will wipe humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. Now that's pretty severe. Uh, that, that's a, a bold and a very direct uh, declaration of God's judgment. And it's something that, that ought to strike fear in our hearts. I don't want to be a part of that when God does that. And so, uh, and so it is. It's, it's uh, you know, that's the general statement. And as we go into Zephaniah, he just uh, continues along that theme but gets more and more specific. And chances are, if you read it, something in there is going to strike, strike you as, as, uh, as something that you're involved in. It just gets darker. Now, um, the beginning is kind of a general judgment against Judah. There's a brief sign of light, like in the video we just saw, that little pinhole in chapter 2, verse 1 and 3, kind of an invitation towards repentance. And then he dives in and gets into uh, doom for the nations and doom for Jerusalem. And, and uh, the, the kind of the theme or the, the way his approach in doom for the nations, these are all the nations that surround uh, God's people. And, and he has a specific message for each one of them. And it, it kind of goes like this. God's people are being judged or are going to be judged because they have broken the covenant that God made with them. And the nations surrounding, well, they never had a covenant with God, so that's not what God's angry about. But what God's getting at here is they tempted Israel away from the covenant. So that's what they're guilty of. And then in, uh, in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, it gets more specific in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where the leaders of God's people are, and they were responsible to keep it on track, and they didn't. In fact, they led the other way. So it goes from the nation to the surrounding nations, to the leaders in Jerusalem. And it's just more of this same message. I will sweep away everything. I will, I will wipe the slate clean. Might be a, a, better, a better phrase uh, to truly summarize uh, uh, Zephaniah's message. At the end, in chapter 3, uh, the, the light opens up, and Zephaniah uh, describes the coming redemption, the coming renewal, and his language, as it is all the way through his book, is, is very expansive. It's very large. And so there's moments in that last chapter where you think he's speaking specifically about Jerusalem and the people there, and he is. And there's moments in that final uh, chapter of light and deliverance where you think he's speaking about the return of the exiles after the destruction of Jerusalem, and he is. And then there's points in that, uh, in that promise of deliverance where it seems clear he's talking about Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the new church age, and he is. <laughs> and there's times when you think he can only be talking about the future return of Jesus and the final judgment and the final renewal. And he is. But I want to dive into Zephaniah himself. Who was Zephaniah? 
in many of, particularly the minor prophets, but in many places in the Bible, we, we don't know very much about the authors or the characters in the stories. And in the minor prophets, some of them, we only know their name and their message and nothing else. But with Zephaniah, we actually know quite a bit about his history and his, who he was. And I don't think God does that by accident. I think who Zephaniah is or was is pertinent to the message he brings and what God wants to communicate to us through, the, through his prophecies. So we do know a few things about Zephaniah. It's only in verse 1, but, uh, but this is how it goes. I'm not going to read it, but this is what we get out of it. Zephaniah is the great-grandson of King Hezekiah. And so um, Hezekiah was one of the good kings or better kings. Uh, many of the kings led the people astray, led them away from God, led them away from covenant. Uh, but Zephaniah at least attempted and to some extent was successful in, in turning the people towards God. And at least his own, his own heart, though maybe a little bit conflicted, was, was, was uh, towards God. He was one of the good kings. Now, we have no idea if Zephaniah, as a young boy, sat on the knee of his great-grandfather. It's reasonable to think he might have. It's reasonable to think he he didn't. We just don't know what the the age gaps are, if that could have been possible or not. But he's the great-grandson of Hezekiah. And and he he must have, I think, it's where we we can ascertain that, the, he must have, or at least might have, at least had some family history of King Hezekiah. And in between, after Hezekiah, they're, they're, the kings uh, take a, a dive in the wrong direction. And when Zephaniah prophesies um, the temple is in disarray, they've filled it with other gods and other idols, and it's so bad that they don't even recognize or know the book of the law. It's been lost. And so Zephaniah comes into this situation, and uh, most of the commentaries or scholars I looked at believe that Zephaniah began his ministry of prophecy about the time when his cousin, Josiah, became a child king at eight years old. And so we, we can read in 2 Kings 22 and 23, why did Josiah, this young boy, all of a sudden rise up and become a good king that leads a revival in the land and a return to covenant. Well, his cousin Zephaniah came before him preaching this message that we read here in his book. And uh, we know that Josiah then, although we don't know their relationship, it's the same time frame, Josiah then began collecting alms for the rebuilding, the renewal of the temple. And then when they started rebuilding, they found the book of the law, It was read to Josiah, and he led first himself and then the nation in uh, purifying the temple, renewal of the covenant, and uh, a revival in the land in that way. Now, true to Zephaniah's prophecy, it didn't last long. And it wasn't long after that when uh, the, the entire nation was taken and scattered around the nations in exile. And, uh, and only, be, only returned as Zephaniah prophecies as a remnant to, to return to God and become God's people. Now there's a story in the Bible that very closely mirrors this story. Do you know which one it is? 
prophet came into the land. Now the situation was different, but Jesus described the situation in, uh, in his time, in John the Baptist's time, as being a whitewashed grave. In other words, the people appeared on the outside to be following the covenant, but in their hearts on the inside, behind the scenes, there was no such thing. There was far from God as in Zephaniah's day. And John the Baptist, a prophet, came along preaching a harsh message of judgment and of repentance. And then after him came his cousin, Jesus. And Jesus, unlike Josiah, who was was maybe a picture or a shadow, uh, but Jesus came and he didn't renew the old covenant but he established a new covenant in his blood. And in that new covenant, more of the prophecies of Zephaniah in chapter 3 came true. And uh, in that new covenant, a true renewal came. And there was revival. And we know in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and everybody was joining the church and there was multiplication and it was, it was going very good. And then there was a persecution and the people were scattered across the nations. And not long after that, the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. The stories are, are mere images of each other. Zephaniah and Josiah and John the Baptist and Jesus. And maybe you can begin to recognize the shape. God's grace has a shape. Maybe you can begin to recognize, I'm going to put a little more detail on it now. Death comes before resurrection. Repentance comes before renewal. And that's a shape that is consistent. Let's look at Zephaniah's words. Well, before we do that, no, I've got a different picture. We can go back to the beginning and we can recognize the shape. The earth was evil and everything in it. And God brought the flood, brought death and destruction. But he saved a remnant in the ark. And out of that remnant came a renewed people who followed God. But they fall away again as cultures and people and individuals tend to. We're not going to retell all the stories, but let's just think about some of them that happen in between. We think about Abraham. Uh, God gives him a grand promise that all the nations will be blessed through his seed. But what has to happen first? Not his physical death, but a kind of death. To enter this promise, he has to leave behind his people, leave behind his religion, leave behind his town, leave behind everything and travel to an unknown place, an unknown destination. And that's a kind of death. Any of you have moved from, from a place where you had lots of friend and family and stuff, you know that there's a death in that. There's a, a grieving. It's difficult. And you'll never do well in the new place unless you truly leave the old behind, unless it dies. And then Abraham comes to the place where, where him and, his, uh, and Lot's shepherds are, are fighting and they stand on the mountain and, and he says to Lot, you choose which place you're going to graze and I'll choose. And I bet you he was hoping that Lot would divide it down the middle, partly good ground and partly bad ground. But Lot picked all the good stuff. 
where he could prosper and become rich. And Abraham went up into the mountains in the rough land where it would be difficult. And God called him to sacrifice his son. The son of promise then provided a lamb for salvation. And um, and we can see this, for example, in the story of Joseph. Joseph is given the promise that through him, that he would be a king and even his brothers would bow to him, that he would be a savior, a leader. First he was sold into slavery. And then he was put in prison. And then even the prison forgot him. It was like a grave. It was a kind of death. And then God miraculously raised him to the highest place in Egypt. And he did save his family. He did preserve through his actions the promise of God. The salvation that was coming. And true to the pattern, God's people flourished and became a nation there in Egypt. But then came slavery and death. In order to come out of that place... We first have the plagues in Egypt, a lot of death. And then we have the Passover and the death of the firstborn. And then we have the Red Sea, which in scriptures is used again and again as the archetypal uh, purification. Where Pharaoh's army and all potential to go back to what was is wiped away. And the nation experiences a death of their past. But then in front of them is Mount Sinai. And God coming down to be present with them. And then the law and the covenant and renewal. And then we can go through again to Jericho. And the stories just repeat. It's the same pattern. It's the same shape. Death comes before resurrection. Zephaniah writes it this way. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away people and animals alike. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea. I will reduce the wicked to heaps of rubble, and I will wipe humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every last trace of their Baal worship. I will put an end to all the idolatrous priests so that even the memory of them will disappear. For they go up to their roofs and bow down to the sun, moon, and stars. They claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Moloch too. And I will destroy those who used to worship me but now no longer do. They will no longer ask for the Lord's guidance or seek my blessing. So that's the death part. That's the destruction part. And then in the final chapter, I'll just read you a few verses from it. And the whole chapter is there for you to to read in your Bibles. But here's what it says in verse 18. I will gather you who mourn for the appointed festivals. You will be disgraced no more. And I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. I will give glory and fame to my former exiles wherever they have been mocked and shamed. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I will give you a good name, a name of distinction among all the nations of the earth, as I restore your fortunes before their very eyes. I, the Lord, have spoken.
first the death, and then the resurrection, and then the renewal, and then the salvation. You know, this pattern should come to us as no surprise. We know it well. In fact, it's something that even psychologists have studied, and it can be illustrated like this. In the psychology literature, it's called liminal space. I hope you've never heard that word before and maybe never heard it again. But let me describe. This is what they say. Liminal space is an in-between space. It's the space where you are on the verge of something new. You are between what was and what will be. You are waiting and not knowing what will come. Now this can happen by choice or by circumstances in our lives. In fact, many of us seek it out. We seek out this space in between. Take, for example, the kids I walk past over in the park by my house at the skate park. They're looking for this space every day. They go up the ramp on their skateboard or their scooter, and they leave the ramp, and they're in the air. That's liminal space. Nobody knows what's going to happen. They hit the ramp and they fall every time. Why do they keep doing it? Why do they seek out that that uncertainty, that danger? Well, the, the answer is really quite obvious. One day, they stick the landing. And the reward of that accomplishment far outweighs the uncertainty of the previous falls. And once they've stuck it once, they can do it again and again and again. And then they've learned a harder trick. You've all felt that when you stood, well, maybe not all of you, I don't know you that well, but many of you, when you stood for the first time on the very top edge of the high diving board at the swimming pool, do you jump or do you walk back? That's liminal space. There's uncertainty in front of you. You don't know what it's going to feel like when you hit the water. And it's a long ways down. You have maybe like a whole second or half a second of near-death experience. Skydivers, you know, we, we seek out this kind of space. And then there's a different kind of choice. There's uh, the choice that comes when you quit a job before you start the new one. You don't know if the new one's going to be worse or better. You hope, you kind of think you've done your research and the new job will be better, but you don't know. There's that space of uncertainty. Uh, When people get married, they enter liminal space. They've let go of security and they haven't stuck the landing yet. For some, it takes years. Then there's the, the experiences that we have no control over and no choice in. The tests come back from the doctor's office. And you know there's a struggle ahead possibly death. You enter that space in between where everything's, everything that was secure is gone. And you don't know if you're going to stick the landing. Somebody dies that was close to you. You could multiply. It's never kind. It's never right to say in those moments 
Oh, don't worry. This is just that space where God's going to bring something good out of it. No, that's not kind. That's not appropriate to say. But each of us, when we look back, we know it's true. When did you grow? When did you become a better person than you were? It's always through those tough times. Maybe you chose to go on a short-term mission trip. And it was really tough. You had to leave what you were comfortable with and enter a space where you knew nothing and didn't know what to do or how to do it. And you come back a different person. You can never see the world again the same way. You're bigger, you're better. Or maybe it's involuntary. Beside the hospital bed. And it's very, very difficult. But you look back now and you say, that's when I grew. I thought I knew what God was doing in my life, but that's when I really found out. I thought I knew how to pray, but that's when I really learned to get close to God. Of course, we always have the opportunity of going the other way. It's a dangerous space. A trapeze artist might miss the swing. It's always dangerous. But that's the shape that God brings. Let me read it to you in a different format. Romans chapter 6. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful nature, sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we now will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. This is a voluntary entering into this experience of death and then resurrection. And we know the stakes are high because if you don't voluntarily enter this and then you actually die, you don't have another chance. Zephaniah comes true, the judgment. But we may, by our choice, by our faith, enter into death with Jesus Christ, and he promises through the Holy Spirit new life. We can begin to enter into the heaven that is promised now. And by beginning now, we are assured because of the resurrection that we will continue on into 
all time and eternity. But death comes first before resurrection. Paul puts it again a little later in Romans like this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, give your bodies to God. You you, you see that language? This is the stakes are high. I plead with you. Don't wait. Give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Can you begin to recognize the shape of salvation in your life? The shape of grace? I told you this would be a bit of a testimony. I, I'm going to tell you how this, how this works, what's happened in my life. I, I'll admit to you that through this time of COVID, through this year, I've struggled. There's been times when I've been energetic and, and getting into my work and my things, and then maybe a week or two later, I look at all the work I've done and I think, I don't think that accomplished anything of value. And I've got kind of down, depressed, and very difficult to even do anything. And, um, and that's been a struggle. It wasn't until I started reading Habakkuk and Zephaniah that it started to change. Because here's what God showed me. You see, this year, of all the years I've been a pastor, this year I was the most organized. I was focused on, I thought, okay, we've kind of got, we, you know, our, in our church we're trying to focus on worship service, discipleship groups, and mentoring. And I was starting to feel like, okay, we've got this Sunday morning worship thing kind of under our belt. I can just let that run on its own. I can turn my attention away from that. And I can really focus into the other two this year. And I had mapped out month by month my goals, who I needed to talk to, who, what we needed to talk about, what we needed to get done. I had it figured out. We were going to make progress in our church this year. And it wasn't until I started reading Habakkuk and Zephaniah and I started looking at the shape of grace in my life that I realized that plan has to die. Now it seems so ridiculous when I say it now, looking at the year we've had, of course. But I hadn't let it go. I hadn't grieved the loss. I still thought I was wiser than God. I still thought my plan was better than his for this year. And I had to go into my files and rip up some sheets of paper with plans on them. And I had to go into my computer and delete files to see them actually die. My plans, my wisdom, my life, my salvation, my gods, my idolatry. I had to see it die. And I had to come to God and say, your plans are better than my plans. I can't for the life of me see how that's true right now, but by faith I believe it. By faith I believe it. 
your plans are better than mine. Your ways are better than my ways. Your wisdom reaches farther than my knowledge. Death comes before salvation, before resurrection. I'm in the middle of that. I don't know what's going to grow out of it. I hope I can hold on to that, that pattern in my life. But I, I'm sure every one of you is experiencing something like that this year. Something's changed. You know, it's interesting. Um, I was curious, so I found a historian who wrote a book on the history of pandemics. I didn't read his book. I don't have time for that. But I listened to one of his lectures. And he wrote this before COVID. So, so he wasn't thinking about our current situation. But in his lecture, he talked about it a bit. And he says that the history of pandemics shows that in some cases, what rises up afterwards is periods of intense creativity and renewal and economic growth and cultural uh, revival. And other times, it just continues downward We can't predict. We don't know. But we can have a role in what happens in our lives and in our church as a result. If we follow the pattern. God decided that something has to die this year. I'm not talking about the tragedy of the, of the lives of people. What will rise up? What will rise up in your life, in my life, in our life? Now, when I when I talk about this stuff, you know, from the psychological research side or or any of that, um, those are those are again they're they're incomplete. They're not the real thing. They're patterns that that are recognized as patterns of renewal uh, that that are effective in people's lives and have some good, but but they're just pointing to this reality that Jesus talks about the true reality, the true death. Can you recognize the shape? When is God bringing something into your life that will result in new life? The true renewal of his spirit. We follow the same pattern as the as first and second kings and first and second chronicles in our own lives. We're, we're, we're up here with God, and then over time, we just kind of slowly get moved away in our priorities, in our thinking, in our, in our lives, in our behavior. And then something has to come along where God wakes us up. And then we die to that, the, those idols. We die to those thought patterns. We die to those behaviors, and we return to him. And then it go, we, go through, we go through that pattern in our lives over and over again. Now, overall, the pattern, I hope, I trust, is towards uh, not going as far down. Like the, the children of Israel went further down every time until after the exile. And I hope that's not the case in your life. I hope, I hope that, that renewal comes sooner each time. And uh, yet it has to come. It has that shape. Something has to die. We have to give it up before we can experience the new life in Christ. So I'll close with, uh, with, again, some words that describe this for us. 
because once we open our eyes to this shape, like the trees and the chairs, we start to recognize it everywhere. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead.